0: It's the last Sunday before Easter when we celebrate a risen Lord. And we have an opportunity today to talk about hope. Uh, Welcome, those of you who are here in this room, if you're in the patio or if you're joining us online. uh, Thank you for being a part of our church and worshiping with us. Uh, My name is Pastor Dave Mergens. I'm the pastor of Adult Formation here at Alexandria Covenant. And this week, uh, if you've been with us for a while, the last several weeks, we've talked about the gospel message, and in our Gospel 101 series, you've heard uh, descriptions of the gospel, and you've also heard descriptions of how the gospel has impacted the lives of just a handful of people uh, from our congregation that, uh, that you may not have known their story. And getting the feedback from that, a lot of what Pastor Trinity and, pa- and, and I've heard people say is, wow, we have a story we want to tell too. Because when the gospel impacts our lives, it changes everything, doesn't it? And so it was so fun to see those these last few weeks. This week, as we start a two-part series on hope, I'm going to talk about how hope is redefined. And next week, Pastor Trinity will talk about hope in the resurrection, as next week is Easter Sunday. It was the summer of 1953. And this summer there was a celebration planned unlike any other. There were over 200 people working full time to pull off this party. There was thousands of yards of specialty carpet of silk and of velvet that were prepared in advance for this party to happen. There were orchestras Planned for this, choirs, there was a royal guard, there were the crown jewels of England that were all laid out for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in June of 1953. And if you were there <clears throat> to the natural eye, it would have been a spectacular sight to see that there was so much to take in and so much that had been done for this one moment for this monarch. To be crowned and coronated as queen it was a phenomenal celebration by all accounts and in contrast consider jesus who at his birth very humble means in a manger in an outbuilding in a feeding trough with the lowest of the lowest working class the shepherds paying homage in that moment and the wise men coming around that time with gifts. Very, very humble entrance into this world. And also a humble coronate, coronation. As you can see, with Palm Sunday, Jesus came. And he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Very humble compared to the gold-adorned carriage that might have been present at the queen's inauguration. <clears throat> and in this moment, we see this celebration but both have one thing in common: very, very different celebrations, very different fanfare. But both have one very striking thing in common, and that's this: hope. Both have hope. Why hope? Well, because anytime a new monarch comes into a na- into a nation and is entered into that, there's hope, right? People hope that with a new leader will come. New policy and promise and development and, and re-energizing a nation. And so today I want to encourage you to see hope, not naturally, but supernaturally. Because there's a couple different types of hope at play in how you'll see me describe this today. And we're going to look look at Luke chapter 9 uh, as a passage which describes Jesus's. Uh, coronation moment, but before I read that, and you can turn to it now, or if you have your phone, it's in the U version in the notes. You can see it there too, or your Bible, or it'll be on the screen when I read it. But I want to talk about the Passover context of this moment. So, in in this moment that Jesus is entering the coronation, there's a much big picture going on here that just to the average reader you wouldn't really think this thing through, but the people of the time got this. So, this was the time of the Passover. And at the time of Passover, some scholars would say that up to two million people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Two million people. I mean, this was the celebration of all celebrations for the Jews. And people would flock from all over to the temple. Now, in this particular situation, uh, there were very well-traveled roads uh, that people would have taken as common highways to get in and out of the city, and Jesus would have been on one of these roads, and Jesus would have had a large crowd of people around him. There's, there's no question about it. You just have to imagine, uh, up to this point, Jesus has done a few things, right? He's risen Lazarus from the dead, he's fed the five thousand. He's done numerous other miracles of healing and provision, and and so you, you kind of have to think of it like this: as the people are walking along and, and they find out where Jesus is, you know, people are whispering, "Hey, is that the guy who who raised Lazarus from the dead? Is is he the one who fed the five thousand people? Did did he really like do all these things and these miracles? And this people had to be crowding around him. Why? Well, because they were expectant of something to happen. <laughs> I mean, think of it like there's this guy who's traveling to Jerusalem in this very special moment for an entire nation, and they recognize that he has authority. They're underneath Roman occupation, and here comes this guy that is claiming to have some kind of national authority, and he's of the line of David, which in the mind of every Jew is where the king comes from. It's from the line of David. So people had to be worked up in this moment, coming with Jesus and the crowd gathering around. And so here they are in this moment of coronation. And by the way, this is the only time that Jesus ever allows in his public ministry a celebration of him as king. So many other times when Jesus has done miracles or things would happen, people wanted to rush to put him into authority and power, and, and he said, nope, it's not my time. It's not my time. He'd escape the crowds and wander off, and it's not my time. Why is that significant? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you why, because this is, this is just mind-blowing when you start to figure it out. Um, first of all, because it's Passover. Uh, Jesus, likely uh, Sunday, possibly even Monday, some would argue, is having this coronation moment. Friday is when they sacrifice all the lambs at Passover. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, what you'll see in the book of Daniel is that God gives insight to Daniel about when the anointed one, or in this case, Jesus, would be cut off from the people. Well, he said 77s, and a lot of scholars believe that those 77s equal 483 years, which from the time of Artaxerxes in 444 BC, you count 483 years and you get to 30 AD, which is exactly the time... They're at Jerusalem, which is the place. They're at Passover, which is the celebration for the lamb to be sacrificed, for the anointed one to be cut off. I mean, this moment could not have been any more intentional, could not have been any more intentional. And if you're a Jew in that time, I mean, you know these things. You, you know you're expectant of somebody to come, and so they would say things um, about uh, the king coming, Hosanna be the king, and, and there's this moment. So, so that's the picture of what's happening here. Now let's look at the passage. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus' response, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even these stones will cry out. Powerful. All of creation would celebrate Jesus. But it had to have been a little strange in this moment because there's an elephant in the room. And here's the situation. Jesus knows full well what's going on in this time and place. He knows because the religious leaders wanted him dead. But up until this point, they had not given, Jesus had not given them a good enough reason to go to the Romans to say, we need this guy dead. But now that he's coming as king, into Jerusalem, they have their ammunition. Jesus knew this. He was intentionally setting in motion his own death by allowing the people to celebrate him as the coming king. Fascinating. Because he knew by Friday when the sacrifices were to happen, he needed to be on that cross as the Lamb of God. Very intentional. Incredibly, incredibly intentional. Was God in this moment? But on the other hand, you have the disciples who were expecting something totally different. Do you think they would have been so excited had they known Jesus was going to be crucified? Probably not. <laughs> we know from other accounts and, and testimonies in Scripture that they really just didn't get it. Jesus told them. He said, "You're going to destroy this temple in three days you're going to raise it." He talked about his crucifixion coming but they didn't really understand fully because they had a different expectation of him as king of the Jews, as somebody who would take the Roman rule and rise up against it and lead the nation of the people into something much, much more hopeful and exciting. Two totally different hopes, hope for a natural kingship to be reestablished for Jesus. And on the other hand, Jesus is showing a supernatural hope in the Father about what is to come with his death and resurrection. So how did hope really change? How did hope really change? Well, let me describe the difference between natural and supernatural hope. So natural hope is like this. It's like saying, you know what? I know that it's going to get warm in the springtime, and I sure hope that it's a nice weekend so I can get some yard work done. Right? That's a natural hope. It's based on probability. You say, okay, Farmer's Almanac, forecast, we don't know for certain because we can't predict the future, but because of the, the measurements that we take, we have reasonable certainty that it's going to be 68 degrees on Monday, which is the actual high last detected. Other ways we use hope are things like, I sure hope the person I picked to win the national championship in college basketball is going to win. Now, if you picked a Big Ten team, you're in trouble, <laughs> uh, because most of them, like my choice Illinois, did not make it too far. <laughs> it should be my daughter and wife who picked Michigan somehow, and now they're still in it, and so I get to sit there where they gloat, um, but maybe they'll lose. We'll see. You hope your team will win. I would apply that to Minnesota sports, but we all know that's not really a probability that it's happened. There's also hope in things like, I hope my wife doesn't find out I spent stimulus money on fishing equipment. <laughs> um, Sorry, honey. Uh, right? There's, there's different hopes that we have. Some are reasonable, some are not. When she realizes I'm gone a lot this summer fishing, she'll kind of figure it out. But, but we do. We, we base our hope on, on chance, on nature, on probability. That's natural hope, right? That's, well, I have a, I have a good reason to believe this is going to happen, so it's a well-wishing of sort. Supernatural hope is totally different. Whereas natural hope is we don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's based on uncertainty. Supernatural hope is based on certainty. Biblical hope is all about certainty. It's about knowing this is going to happen. It's not a, I wish this is going to happen, or based on things that, that, you know, predict it, it's going to happen. But it is being full on certain that this is going to happen. Here is a great example of this in Second Kings chapter twenty, verse nine through eleven. So uh, you can turn there. You can read on the screen, but let me set up the story a little bit. Uh, this is King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, and Hezekiah is in this moment where the prophet Isaiah from God tells you know Isaiah go to Hezekiah and tell him you are sick and you are going to die, and so set your home in order, get everything ready because you are about to pass away. Uh, just a little side note, because I, I love deriving my theology from the text. In, in some instances, and I fully believe God knows the entire future, but I also believe the entire future is not set. And here's an example of this. So God says, you're going to die, Hezekiah. It's going to happen. What does Hezekiah do? He prays. And what does God do? He adds 15 years to his life. Crazy story. But Hezekiah wants some proof of this to happen. So here's what happens in starting the verse 9. So the prophet Isaiah, he answered this way, "'This is the Lord's sign to you "'that the Lord will do what he has promised, "'give Hezekiah more life. "'Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps "'or shall it go back 10 steps?' What are they referring to? They're referring to the shadow on the steps leading up to Ahaz's place. It's a temple area. And, and so, obviously, you know how shadows work. It's based on the sun angle and the rotation of the earth. And so, it's very predictable when the shadow is going to come. That's why we have sundials, because the sun just doesn't go backwards. That's what you think. Is what it says. It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps, said Hezekiah. Rather, have it go back ten steps. And the prophet Isaiah called on the Lord and the Lord made the shadow go back the 10 steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Fascinating. Even the earth's rotation is subject to God's sovereignty. That God can do anything he wants. He is not limited by things you and I are limited to. If something is for sure going to happen, right, based on natural hope, probability. I mean, how many times in the Old Testament did a massive army come up against Israel? They should have won. (laughs) Kind of like your sports team, should win. It's that natural hope. You're like, there's no way they can lose. But God's like, oh no, (laughs) I'm in control of nature, and I'm in control of the supernatural, and I can do what I want. And he does in this instance, because God is not subject to natural limits. You and I, we have natural limits. We have things that, like the law of gravity, that you just can't escape or avoid. (laughs) Um, We all know that someday we will die physical death. 100% chance. You can say a lot of certainty here. Ben Franklin once said, and many of you have probably used this quote before, uh, the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes, (laughs) Death and taxes, well, obviously Ben Franklin didn't live through COVID, so he didn't know that they can extend and change the date on when the taxes are due. Uh, But they're still coming, so we know it's a thing and it's going to happen. But but there's some certainty and probability. But God's not limited to those things. He's not limited to the things that the natural world suggests are going to happen. You see, Jesus' death... Didn't really prove anything because all men die. It was his resurrection that changed everything because no man has been resurrected and is now living. And that is Christ. It's a beautiful picture. You see, hope requires that we see the future through the past. Supernatural hope requires that we see the future through the past. What do I mean by that? I mean, we need to be Easter people to look at life through the lens of Easter to say God has done these things, and they're great things, and they defy all reason, all logic, all nature, but he has, he can, and he will do what he says he will. Easter defines hope. Easter defines hope, right? That as we look back and see what Jesus did one week from today, that we can look forward with a certainty, not a well-wishing, not, well, I hope that this happens, but a certainty. I know it's going to happen. Why do I know it's going to happen? Well, 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus after his resurrection, countless. It it would hold up in the court of law if you were to put on trial all of the, the evidence that testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is overwhelming. The textual evidence, the witness evidence, it's all there because it happened. And we also know through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that God confirms it to us that Jesus is alive. And so Easter defines hope. My disclaimer in this is that this kind of faith doesn't make natural sense. Doesn't make natural sense. We are supernatural people living in a natural world. Everything about this world is natural, right? In the sense that uh, the world thinks it's odd if you tithe your paycheck, for example. The world thinks it's odd if you give generously of yourself to others at the sacrifice of your own self and family. The world says, why would you do this, this, and this about how, why would you treat people like this and lay your life down for your enemy? And it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, It actually does make a lot of sense if you know what we know about supernatural hope. Because this world isn't it, right? There's a better place coming. And we are living a natural life in a supernatural way. And of course it's going to be challenging for us. It's going to be the odd part of Christian living. We're living like supernatural beings, like spiritual beings that God created us to be in a world that doesn't accept Jesus and doesn't get that. Um, here 's a good example of it, and this is Abraham uh, and Sarah so in, in Romans uh, chapter four, verse eighteen, you see Paul talking about something that uh, that Abraham was commenting on here in this part. Well, it, it, the story goes like this, and many of you know it that Abraham was approached by God and, and said okay you 're going to be the father of many nations." <laughs> And he's like, I'm old, I can't have kids anymore. My wife's past that age, like natural limitations, God, we can't do this. And Sarah's in the background laughing and the angel basically says, no, this is happening. You are going to. Abraham's like, all right, I'm going to believe God. So Romans 4.18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Let me read that again. In hope, he believed against hope. It makes no sense at all if both of these hopes are the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. They cancel each other out. In hope, he believed against hope. How is it even possible? Well, here's how it's possible. If in hope in God, a God who is not subject to the natural limits of the physical world we live in, like childbearing age, God's not subject to that. He believed against hope, which said this physically can't happen. Do you see that? That God can do anything. And if he says it, he's going to do it. God will do what he says. He will always do what he says because he can. He's not limited. And that is the beauty of having faith in God. And that's the kind of faith that Abraham was commended for. Um, the Passover, if you're familiar with it, uh, when they were escaping the Egyptians and uh, the plague of the firstborn, and they spread the blood over the doorposts. And Passover wasn't about the occupants of the house. It wasn't about the occupants of the house. God didn't send the, the angel of death and say, hey, go go on each door and, and check out the house and make sure that everyone is, is you know, living a clean life and, and they've prayed enough and they've attended church or they've watched it online or whatever. Um, he didn't say that. He says what? Check the doorposts. Check the doorpost. And if in faith they sprinkled it with blood as commanded by me, pass over that house. It wasn't about the occupants, it was about the obedience. And passover is a reflection on what Jesus did. That our obedience to put our faith in Jesus Christ is rewarded not because we're great, not because we're deserving but because God does what he says he's going to do. And if he sees us in Christ, we will have glory with him. That these bodies, although they may die, will rise again someday. And we have eternity with him to enjoy. Um, If, you don't have to answer this question, but have you ever cried through a movie you've already seen before? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, where it's just that tear-jerking moment, and you're just like, I know how this is going to go, but I'm still crying. It's sad. This was me last week when John gave his testimony, and I'm, I'm sure many of the rest of you had no dry eyes, too, as this was going on. But, but as you hear somebody tell their story, and again, I had heard it a few times up to this point, I'm still crying. Why? Even though I know what the outcome is going to be. Because we're people, and it's not easy. We have emotions and feelings and desires. We live in a natural world, even though supernaturally we know what God's going to do. And so there's this tension here. And Jesus displayed this fully in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, before he was betrayed. What did he say to God? Father, take this cup from me. In great anguish, sweating blood, he was broken. And it just devastated But did he also know the outcome? Of course he did. (laughs) He's God. He knew where this was going, but he also knew it was hard, and he was fully God and fully human, and so he felt what you and I feel when we go through life. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean having hope and that everything is duckies and bunnies in life. Okay, I know it's Easter time, so I can use an analogy. But, you know, when you go through life and you have those moments, you think, well, I'm a Christian. This thing shouldn't happen to me. I shouldn't feel this way. Jesus did even though you know the outcome, doesn't mean you're immune from the ups and downs of the journey. Jesus lived hope. Jesus lived hope. Uh, I have to think about this too, but I like to picture what's going on in the minds of the people in the Bible stories. Knowing what the context is kind of helps me to understand the text. So going back to Palm Sunday, right? Jesus is, is entering on his donkey, palm branches are being laid down, the cloaks are being spread out, and as he comes in, imagine what he's thinking, right? He's thinking, I am right now setting in motion the events that will lead to my death. But I know death's not forever. He's probably also thinking, again, my own conjecture here, but I'm guessing this would be the case, all these disciples around me. They think I'm going to be the next king of Israel and that all of a sudden I'm going to overthrow the Romans and they have different expectations. They have a natural hope. (laughs) How are they going to feel when this happens? Well, we know because they scattered when Jesus was hung on that cross. Right? They didn't expect that to happen. How bittersweet must it have been for Jesus riding in there and people were praising his name, Hosanna to the king of kings. If any king in all history was deserving of a coronation ten times what Queen Elizabeth got, it was Jesus. But he came in in humility, knowing what lay before him, knowing what the expectations of the people were. And he lived hope. And that's probably where a lot of his motion came from. We live hope in the face of pain. You see, we are called to live like Jesus. We are called to live like Jesus. You see, this, again, is the hard part of the Christian faith, right? It's being absolutely certain that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to come back in a different coronation, the second coming, and all those who are in him, Ephesians 1, all those who are in him will become like him, 1 Corinthians 13, will become like him when they see him as he is, that will be like Christ, and that he will reign, and that it will be glorious. It's going to be awesome. But knowing that and then having a loved one die or experiencing a critical or terminal illness yourself or a job loss or the loss of a son or a daughter, I mean, those things are painful. It's brutal this life is, but we have supernatural hope and we're called to live like Jesus not unwavered by our emotions. I mean, we, we have them, but unwavered in our mission. Um, a couple of examples uh, in this last passage that I'm going to share with you. It's in Luke chapter 9. Uh, I think about this because this is on the road to, to Jerusalem. Jesus is challenging a few people who want to follow him. And again, he knows where he's going and what he's going to do. These disciples are thinking something totally different. So in Luke nine fifty one. Uh, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he knew what was going to happen. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He steeled himself. He said, I know this is going to take place. This is going to be difficult and painful and emotional and all of the things. But I also know who wins in the end. He set his face toward Jerusalem is what some translations say he set his face toward Jerusalem. So a few people seeing him go to Jerusalem naturally would be like, yeah, this guy's going to be the next king. Like, I want to follow him. So some people are, are experiencing Jesus's rebuttal to that. here's verse 57 through 59 through 62. It says this, I will follow you wherever you go. So as I said, a man who was walking along the road by Jesus, and Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. (laughs) Challenge number one, this is not going to be comfortable. 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Uh, Why is that significant? It seems kind of harsh that Jesus would say that, uh, because in Jewish culture, you got your inheritance when your father was dead, So this was you you get paid a wage, you work for your father your entire life, and then this is when you get your inheritance. So for a Jewish man to say this, what he's literally saying is, "I'm going to go and collect my inheritance." Of course, there's the celebration of his father's life and then the funeral service and the stuff, but but this is about inheritance right here. And what does Jesus say? Well, let the dead go and bury their dead, but you proclaim the kingdom of God. Strong words. Verse 61, still another one said, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Wow, this is hard. The Christian life is obviously the most rewarding thing both now and to come. And I can testify about the now part. The peace that comes with walking with Christ is unsurpassed when any other place in life. But it's, it's hard because God calls us to live with a supernatural viewpoint of life, not a natural one. That our lives should not be seeking things of this world. Now, we do when we can and we should, appropriately so, but, but our, our mindset should always be focused on the supernatural. And that's why living as a Christian just doesn't make sense. Because people are like, why would you do this? And you're like, because I know something you don't know. <laughs> Jesus, why would you go to the cross? Because He knew what was to come and what his payment on the cross would do for the sins of all people who accepted him as Lord and Savior. It's beautiful to see the certainty. And Palm Sunday is a reminder of this reality. It's a reminder of the reality that we have a supernatural hope that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And there is no natural law No physical law, no limitation, no political system, no nothing that can stop him. God will do it. And that is good news. That is good news. So Jesus goes to the cross. Why? Because he trusted in God and because he saw life supernaturally. He saw what the reality really was. He didn't see socioeconomic barriers like the religious leaders did. He didn't see political systems the way the Romans did, right? He approached life saying, The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. It is coming. There's going to come a time. Follow me there. Live your life now as a citizen of the kingdom to come. Weird stuff. But in light of Easter, we know this is the way. It's not easy. It's not easy, but we, we know the outcome. And so my, my encouragement to you this week as we journey towards Easter this next Sunday is that you stay on mission and that you live with hope. And not the natural kind of hope that says, oh, "I I just wish, <laughs> based on what's happened in the past, I wish, but no, the certain hope that says God defies natural logic. He can, he will, and we expect it to happen 100% because he's God. He's fully sovereign. And that is the Christian hope, which is far different than any other religion, any other truth claim. That's the God that we serve, the one who can do measurably more than we could ask or imagine. We can trust that he will come back. Would you bow with me as I pray? So God, I, I confess to you that there are days I get caught up in the natural world I get caught up with my human nature, my emotions. I get caught up with what I can and cannot do, with the way politics go, with the way uh, sports teams go, with the way life happens and, and raising kids. And there's so many things, God, that you know moves, uh, moves me. And sometimes I, I, I take too much of that to heart. But God, like many people in this room, I, I pray um, that my heart and that the hearts of those in this room would be tuned not to the natural world, but to the God who defies logic, the God who is going to show back up again and do what he said he's going to do, that we may be bold to live out the kind of hope that Jesus had in mind as he marched toward Jerusalem on that donkey. Lord, inspire us to live like that. In your name, amen.